we claim to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who has himself professed to be in John 14, 6, I am the way and what? The truth. Our Lord calls himself the truth. Do you think it would matter for those who claim to be his followers to be known as men and women of the truth? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new 12-part series titled Recovering a Lost Legacy. The Library of Alexandria in Egypt is the most famous library from antiquity, containing an estimated 500,000 works. It was accidentally destroyed in the first century B.C. Years and years of knowledge and practice were lost. Tragically, the same may be true of today's church. The Christian church at large has abandoned many of the things that define its long legacy. Today, in part one of this series, Tom will look at the legacy of the authority of Holy Scripture, the Bible, and how losing it means losing the knowledge of God, the redemptive life and work of Christ, and how Christ's church should conduct itself in the world. It's a foundational way to begin the series, and we hope you'll be greatly enriched throughout the study. Well, Tom, why exactly must every church and every believer submit to the authority of the Bible? The New Testament is so clear that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Colossians 1.18 makes that point so very clearly. The church is Christ's church, and therefore His Word has to be the ultimate authority over what happens in His church, how the church functions. That's why Paul writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and tells him he has to conduct himself in keeping with the teaching of the New Testament. And so to to deviate from Christ's word is ultimately to disobey Christ himself. And so we are commanded to take the same perspective about Scripture that he does, made so powerfully in the Sermon on the Mount, to embrace it in our own lives and in the life of the church. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Well, this morning, I want us to begin just a brief summer series that the elders and I have talked about its importance for some time, and this seems like the the proper time to sort of launch into it. Let me begin by reminding you of one of the most interesting places in the ancient world. The Library of Alexandria is the most famous library from antiquity. About 295 B.C., King Ptolemy I Soter of Egypt charged Demetrius, a former politician from Athens who had fled to Egypt, to found the Library of Alexandria. A Greek document from the second century BC reads like this, Demetrius had at his disposal a large budget in order to collect, if possible, all the books in the world. And to the best of his ability, he carried out the king's objective, end quote. Estimates 
vary as far as the total number of volumes that were accumulated in the Library of Alexandria, but everyone agrees that almost all of the collective writing of the ancient world was assembled there. The estimates range between more than 200,000 books to even 700,000 books. Somewhere between that number were collected. Tragically, with its accidental destruction by Julius Caesar in 48 BC, literally thousands of years of knowledge and practice were lost. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have walked into the Library of Alexandria with literally almost every book that had been written up to that time assembled? As I thought about that library, I was reminded that also tragically over the last 150 years or so, the same thing has happened in the Christian church. The Christian church at large has lost its rich legacy of knowledge and practice. What is a legacy? Well, Webster defines a legacy in this sense as something handed down from the past. And that legacy, what has been handed down from the past to the church, has sadly been lost today. In some cases, it's the result of carelessness and neglect. In other cases, some have intentionally abandoned their biblical legacy for some new philosophy, some new idea, some new approach, some cultural idea. Many of you have come from churches where some or much of the Christian church's legacy has been lost. And you've come to CBC and you've found things that seem new or certainly different than other churches that you've attended. The truth is there is nothing new here. We're simply doing what much of the church has always done. But the elders know at the same time that that transition from where some of you have come from to what happens here can be a difficult one, a hard one. So for the next few weeks, till we get back into 1 John with September, I I want to address some basic elements of the church's legacy. Not our church, although that's true, but rather the church at large, the Christian church down through the centuries some basic elements of the church's legacy that have been lost to many churches today. And I have a couple of goals. One of those is I want to help all of us have a more profound appreciation for those beliefs and practices. More importantly, I want us all to understand that these things are rooted in the Scripture so that we treasure them, so that we defend them, and so that we benefit from them as our Lord intended. Today, I want us to focus on the recovery of the legacy of expository preaching. Now, for a few of you who were recently in the Faithful Stewards Conference, I covered these issues there, but for most of you, these will be new ideas, or at least they will be um, ideas that you don't think about all the time. Let me set some backdrop for you as to what's going on in the culture at large. Back in 2009, Ed Stetzer of Lifeway interviewed Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley and a pastor whose megachurch is well known for its seeker-sensitive style. Stanley at the time had just written a book on preaching. That interview is, of course, now more than 10 years old, but 
his controversial comments won't die. His comments about preaching continue to make the rounds on social media. Stetzer asked this question, what do you think about preaching verse-by-verse messages through books of the Bible? Stanley's response was shocking. He said, quote, guys that preach verse-by-verse through books of the Bible, that's just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. Now, there's a man who's clearly never done it. (laughs) Then he added this theological assertion, and here's the heart of what I want you to get. This is the idea that's out there. He simply gave voice to it, quote, and he, he was talking about sequential exposition, and he said, quote, it isn't how you grow people. Is he right? Is verse-by-verse exposition of books of the Scripture a man-made method that we can use or ignore at our own discretion? Is it a dated, useless approach? Sadly, most of the professing church today in America thinks so. This week, I did what I've done before, and and I just took a, a short visit around to the websites of the largest churches here in our immediate area. So far this year, not one of them has done anything like expository preaching. Right now, in fact, the largest seeker-sensitive church in our area is in a series called, quote, at the movies, end quote, where the pastor plays a movie clip and then goes on to try to draw out of that, that contemporary movie something of God's truth. Another large church in our area is trying to find God's truth buried within secular songs. Now, I need to acknowledge that there are good churches scattered throughout the metroplex. We don't have the Elijah syndrome, you know, we only are left and they seek our life to take it away. No, God says there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. We, We freely admit that and we're grateful for that. At the same time, they are increasingly hard to find, and it is fair to say that most churches have abandoned any serious attempt to study the Bible. But the legacy of the Christian church is that expository preaching of the Scripture is, in fact, the biblical pattern. Now, obviously, when it comes to expository preaching, you, uh, you accept it or you wouldn't be here, and maybe you're even committed to it. But my question to you this morning is, do you know why? Could you defend the practice of the exposition, the verse-by-verse study of God's Word to someone who challenged you? Well, we need to understand what the Bible says. That's the most important thing. And we need to know why we do what we do. We must understand the arguments for sequential expository preaching. So let's see if we can do that this morning. I want us to begin with a definition, a definition of expository preaching. My definition is drawn very simply from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, where in the pastoral epistles, Paul challenges Timothy with this. He says, until I come give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. You'll notice in that verse, he challenges Timothy that when it comes to his ministry of the Word, he's to do three things. He's to read it, he's to teach it or explain it, 
and he is to exhort. That is, he is to apply the truth that's taught. So let me give you a definition then. An expository sermon is one in which the preacher reads the text, explains the text in its context, and applies the text to the life of the hearers. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.2. He contrasts adulterating the Word of God with making a manifestation of the truth. The Greek word manifestation is a word which means a display or an exposition. That's what an expository message does. It makes a display of, an exposition of, a manifestation of the truth. Expository preaching is almost always also systematic, consecutive, or sequential. I'll use those words interchangeably this morning, systematic, consecutive, or sequential. By that I mean it moves verse by verse through a book of the Bible. But why is it that we should be committed to expository preaching? Is there biblical warrant for ordinarily preaching through books of the Bible? So let's move on then, having seen a definition, to the arguments for expository preaching. The arguments. There are several categories of supporting arguments. Let me begin with the the sort of weakest arguments, but they're still still true, and that is the practical arguments. And this is where most people go and stay, as if these were the only arguments for expository preaching. But let me just mention them. The practical… There are practical benefits to preaching verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through the text of Scripture. First of all, it ensures a completely Bible-centered ministry. If I do it right, you're not hearing a lot of Tom Pennington. You're hearing the Scripture and you're seeing it explained. Secondly, it allows those who listen to grasp the logical development of the Word of God as the Spirit inspired it. Thirdly, it addresses ultimately all of the major themes of Scripture. If you're preaching through the Bible, you're going to come to all the themes that are there. Number four, it provides a balance of emphasis. You know, we're all given to hobby horses. And the beauty of verse-by-verse exposition is that we end up dealing with biblical themes with the same frequency and with the same emphasis that God the Holy Spirit has. Number five, It forces us to deal with all Scripture, including difficult passages. I'll just be honest with you. If it weren't for the commitment to verse-by-verse exposition, there are passages I would never preach. I hate preaching on giving, not because the Scripture doesn't teach it, but because of how it's abused in our culture. But I don't get that luxury. When I come to it in the text, I have to deal with it. And, of course, there are other difficult issues as well. Number six… It teaches us all how to read and study the Bible systematically, contextually for ourselves. I don't know if you realize it or not, but even if you forget a lot of what I say every Sunday, as we're going verse by verse through the Scripture, you are learning how to approach the Scripture. There is a lesson in the method as well as in the message. Number seven, it best promotes our spiritual growth. I would do this if I would preach expositionally if it were just for my own soul, because I know I personally benefit most from it. And number eight, and this is just for me, it aids my sermon selection. (laughs) I hate having to choose what I'm going to preach on, because everything's important. How do you choose? And the beauty is the Holy Spirit's chosen the next passage for me. 
So those are some practical arguments. But let me quickly move on to just one theological argument. There are a number of them. I don't have time to walk through them, so let me just touch on a theological argument, and that is the nature of inspiration. Consecutive exposition flows naturally from the biblical doctrine of inspiration. God chose to give us His Word in cohesive, consecutive units of thought that we refer to as books. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is an amazing passage about the Scripture. He begins, beginning in verse 6, dealing with revelation that God has revealed His Word to us. Verse 10, for to us God has revealed these things through the Spirit. But you get to verse 12, and he comes from revelation to inspiration. Look at verse 12 with me. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now, watch verse 13. Which things, the things that God has given to us, Paul says, we as an apostle also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Both the thoughts and the words that the authors of Scripture used were not ultimately theirs, but were the Spirit's. That's what we call verbal inspiration. It means God has, has breathed out the very words of Scripture. You've often heard me say that, that 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is, is the product of the breath of God. It is God-breathed. The words of Scripture are as much the product of the breath of God as my words right now are the product of my breath. That's the point. And so, if these are the thoughts of God expressed in the very words of God, presented in the exact form and order in each book that the Spirit of God inspired, then what can we do to improve on that? Inspiration argues strongly that our common approach to the Scripture be consecutive expository preaching. Now, don't misunderstand. Obviously, that doesn't mean that pastors should never preach a topical sermon. There are examples in Scripture of that. This series, this sermon is an example of that. But understand this, the church best reflects divine revelation and inspiration when the consistent pattern of preaching follows the flow of the divinely inspired text. That's the theological argument. Let's move on to the historical argument. A brief survey of church history reveals that the church's consistent commitment has been to consecutive expository preaching. In the mid-2nd century A.D., we learn about the earliest Christian services. Justin Martyr provides the first account outside of Scripture of a Christian church service. Listen to what he writes. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place And the memoirs of the apostles, that's the New Testament, or the writings of the prophets, that's the Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president, that is the person presiding, verbally instructs 
and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Did you see the picture of 1 Timothy 4.13 here? They read the text, explained the text, and applied the text. That's the earliest non-biblical record of a Christian worship service. Now, this pattern continued. Sadly, let's acknowledge that many of the early church fathers tended to stray from this pattern, but there were consistent bright lights. Augustine's sermons, for example, were often exceptions. As one author describes it, for him, a sermon was first of all an exposition of Scripture. In the in the same period of time, John Chrysostom was an exceptional example of a faithful expositor of Scripture. Hughes Oliphant Old, who wrote a massive magisterial seven-volume set on the, on the preaching, reading and preaching of God's Word in the church, writes this, by far the largest number of John Chrysostom's sermons were his expository sermons. On occasion, his series would be interrupted when he decided it was necessary to preach on some other subject. In principle, however, he preached the Lectio Continua, beginning each sermon where he had left off the sermon before, end quote. The Reformers also argued for and displayed by example the consistent practice of sequential expository preaching. John Calvin, for example, systematically preached through books of the Bible. Whether the biblical book was long or short, he was determined to preach every verse. So, here's just a sampling. He preached 89 sermons on Acts, 174 sermons on Ezekiel, 159 sermons on Job, 200 sermons on Deuteronomy, 353 sermons on Isaiah, 123 sermons on Genesis, 109 sermons on 1 Samuel, and 87 sermons on 2 Samuel. What about other reformers? Luther preached expositionally. Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, decided that he was no longer going to preach on the passages that had been prescribed for him. Instead, he announced to his congregation that he was going to preach through the entire gospel of Matthew with his Greek text on the pulpit in front of him. The Puritans followed the same practice. J.I. Packer, in his book on the Puritans' quest for godliness writes this, the Puritans were devotees of continuous exposition and have left behind the magnificent sets of commentary sermons on complete chapters and books of the Bible. Clearly then, beloved, understand that there is historical precedent for consecutive expository preaching. The men on whose shoulders we stand believed and practiced this method. At the same time, let me acknowledge to you that Historical consensus alone is not indisputable evidence, but the fact that so many of them believed consecutive exposition best honors God's Word, best equips God's people, is an argument that we simply cannot ignore. But let's move on to the key, and that is the biblical arguments. The biblical arguments. Here was Stanley's most serious charge against consecutive sequential exposition in that interview. Quote, no one in Scripture modeled that. There's not one example, end quote. 
The most important question for us when it comes to any issue, including how I and the other elders of this church handle the Word of God, is does the Bible itself include clear examples of expository preaching, and does the Bible demand this of its teachers? We must be prepared to understand what the Scripture teaches and to defend this from the Scripture. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled Recovering a Lost Legacy. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music